0: What's going on, friends? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Genius Foods. In this episode of the show, I'm super excited to introduce you to my friend, Sean Stevenson. Sean is the host of the top-rated health podcast, The Model Health Show, which I had the pleasure to be on just a few months ago. He's also the author of the wonderful book, Sleep Smarter. This episode of the show is gonna go into depth on all things sleep. We're gonna discuss how sleep can help you lose weight, We're going to discuss the surprising things that you can do during the day to optimize your sleep. We discuss specific nutrients, including supplements to boost your sleep. And we dive into how much sleep you actually need. As you might guess, there is no one size fits all recommendation here. So listen in and be ready to take notes. I'm pumped. Now, before we get to the show, I want to give a shout out to Perfect Keto, which is a company that makes a number of great products that can help support your keto lifestyle. If you've read my book, Genius Foods, and you follow my work, you know that I'm an advocate of intermittent ketosis. I think it makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary standpoint. And the research that I've reviewed, both in humans and in animals, really seem to suggest that ketones are a very beneficial uh, fuel from the standpoint of the brain. But of course, it's not always easy to maintain a ketogenic diet, especially if you are suffering from cognitive decline. That's where I think exogenous ketone supplements, like what... uh, Perfect Keto produces can be extremely empowering. The brain's utilization of ketones is supply driven. That means that when you consume an exogenous ketone supplement, your brain, as far as we know, is gonna use ketones in proportion with what is in circulation. If you wanna give Perfect Keto products a try, you can go to perfectketo.com and use promo code MAX10 to save $10 off your order of $30 or more. If you're looking for a place to start, I really enjoy their collagen powders, which have MCT oil powder uh, already mixed in. And um, also their instant coffee packets are great and they taste very good too, especially their mocha ones. Big fan. So again, go to perfectketo.com, use promo code MAX10 to save $10 off. You could use that 10 bucks to... Buy a copy of my book, Genius Foods, to give as a gift for Christmas, guys. The holidays are coming up. All right, well, I'm super excited to get into this conversation with Mr. Sean Stevenson. If you find the discussion compelling, guys, please take a screen grab and tag Sean and I on social media. Please help me spread the word about the genius life. And if you feel so inclined, leave a rating and a review on iTunes. That really helps to um, bring new listeners to the show And I do read every single review that you guys post, and you've posted some really lovely ones. So to everybody out there who has um, taken the time to uh, write a review, it means the world to me. And I really appreciate um, your efforts to help me grow the show and to bring new listeners to it. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, all right, without further ado, here is Mr. Sean Stevenson, host of The Model Health Show and the author of the best-selling book, Sleep Smarter. Sean Stevenson, thank you so much for being here with me, man. This is this is amazing. Oh man, it's my absolute pleasure to do this. It was such a pleasure getting to meet you initially when I was on your incredible podcast, and uh, you know, obviously since then I've launched my own podcast, and you know, it's a little intimidating, not gonna lie, interviewing a master interviewer. So take it easy on me, will you? <laughs> I can't make any guarantees, man, but <laughs> you know I understand it'll be fun. Well, I love your book, Sleep Smarter. It's it's incredible, actually. It's like an encyclopedia for all things sleep-related, and I'm, I'm super excited to dive into sleep because it's not a topic that I've talked about on my podcast at all, and you are a master on this uh, on this topic. So, I mean, I guess let's just start with, well, why don't we start with your backstory? How did you become so interested in sleep and ultimately come to writing the book? Sure.
1: You know, this was, a for me, uh, this book came out at a time where I was just totally shocked, myself that there wasn't a a real kind of compilation of these strategies and insights and in relationship to sleep wellness. And I don't talk about this a lot, but my uh, one of the agents that I was choosing, my literary agent choices that I had in front of me, was kind of really trying to push me away from that idea. Just like, you know, this isn't something that people are into and, you know, it's not really, you know, I'm a nutritionist, by the way. So it's like, we do a, a book on nutrition and fitness, we're going to kill it. But my mission wasn't necessarily to, to quote kill it. It was to to help people, first and foremost. And there's a huge gap in the market in education as far as sleep is concerned. And a lot of folks don't realize that your sleep quality is potentially a bigger influence on your overall health, your physical appearance, you know, your biomarkers, than your nutrition, than your exercise. And so having this piece of data and kind of what got me into it was my own personal struggle initially, which I'll share with you in just a second, but for me, the big catalyst for the book getting written was doing my clinical work. And I was having people, we was having incredible, incredible success with folks coming in, type two diabetes, you know, they're on metformin, insulin sometimes, and helping them to reverse the condition working along with their physician. And you know, some folks in just a couple of weeks being able to get off their medications, normalize their blood sugar, same thing with high blood pressure, hypertension, folks on the lisinoprils and statins and all that stuff. And we had about right around about a 75 to 80% success rate. But as you know, man, there's this percentage of people that don't seem to get well, no matter what they're doing with their nutrition and with their exercise. And that ironically would keep me up at night, you know, just thinking about, are they not doing the stuff? Are they lying to me? But it wasn't them. It was me and it was my teaching and it was my questions. I was not asking people about stress and I was not asking people about their sleep quality. And it was a little over five years ago where I had this revelation and I started asking people about their sleep and it blew my mind. You know, the stories that people were sharing with me about, you know, sleeping two or three hours and waking up or sleeping on average three or four hours a night or they're doing shift work. And it started to really come together that it wasn't their nutrition, it was an issue with what their hormones were doing in relation to into to their sleep quality. And so what I did was, and you know this as well, people want change, but they don't want to change, right? And so I realized that I can't have folks flip their entire life upside down just to get better sleep. I'm going to dive in. Let me look at some of the real clinical data that we have. that We know that these things work, that people can implement simple things, that they can see some measurable improvement in their sleep quality and thus their health. And so when folks started to implement this stuff, it's like, man, it was seemingly these miracles would take place. You know, people have been struggling with weight for years. You know, the 20 pounds would finally come off and stay off. Folks who are struggling with their blood pressure. Uh, sometimes we're talking about folks with uh, t- cancer tumors. You know, we've got some before and after pictures of some of the patients that I work with there as well. And depression, anxiety, diabetes, just you name it, we start to see all these incredible results from people who would. Traditionally, been struggling, and also conventional medicine just telling them there's nothing you can do about it. And so, I became very passionate about the subject, man, because I saw firsthand the power of great sleep. And then, looking at the the evidence again, some of the things we could talk about in relationship to how our sleep impacts our body composition, how it impact, impacts our brain and our performance, how it impacts our life overall. You know, just having energy and vitality. And so, um, and just a quick snapshot from my own story is that. When I was 20, I was diagnosed with the so-called incurable spinal condition. It was degenerative disc disease and degenerative bone disease. And at the time, when I was trying to get my health back on track, I wasn't sleeping well. It was my biggest battle because the pain I was experiencing would keep me up at night and just changing positions. And so when I improved some of the things I was doing during the day, it showed up for me when I laid my head down at night. And so a big takeaway for folks today is that if you're not sleeping, you're not healing. And so once I got my sleep dialed in, uh, I got better a lot faster. And through that process of wellness, the thing about this man is that when something is going good, you don't think about it. And so because my sleep was good for all those years, I didn't think about it. I didn't think to ask other people about it. And it was a big wake up call when I started to see the influence that negative, kind of poor sleep can have on people's health.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's incredible. I had heard of the term hanger before, you know, which is usually a symptom of metabolic inflexibility when somebody just can't make it between meals and they get that sort of confluence of being uh, irritable mixed with low blood sugar. But in your book, you talk about hunger, which is something I'd never heard of before. So what what is that and how does that relate to sleep and body composition, weight, and ultimately health? It's uh, such a great question. And the
1: first thing I wanna do is just like, let's look at our lives. Um, just practically, you know, how often, when do you tend to get into a disagreement with your significant other? Chances are it's when you're tired and or hungry. And a lot of arguments, and you just look at the data, there's studies on this, tend to happen at the end of the day, you know, before bed when folks are tired. And you're going to have a tendency to be more irritable simply because, and I'm just going to share this with folks, like what's going on there? Why am I calling this hungry? And UC Berkeley did some fascinating brain imaging scans. And they looked at what happens inside of the sleepy brain. And just after 24 hours, a short sleep debt of just 24 hours, which is very, very normal in our society, we see this heightened activity in the amygdala and we see significantly reduced activity in the prefrontal and insular cortex. And so these are the parts of the brain that are responsible for decision-making, for distinguishing between right and wrong, for social control those parts of the brain literally start to go cold. They start to turn off. And the part of our brain really is, it's a very emotional center part of our brain. And it's very driven by uh, a sense of, uh, of certainty, a sense of selfishness in a sense, because it's kind of getting into that part of the brain that's about survival of self. That part of the brain takes over. We call it an amygdala hijack takes place. And this is all derived simply from being low on sleep. And so what happens in a relationship context when you are low on sleep is that you're going to tend to have far less incidence and ability. And by the way, everything that I say, people can just go to Dr. Google and, and look into, or of course they can check out Sleep Smarter, is that what happens is you have a far less ability to perspective take, to put yourself in other people's shoes, right? That ability goes down dramatically when you're tired. Also, Stress hormones are elevated. This is a normal, natural thing when you're sleep deprived. Because for you and your physiology, it's just like there must be a problem because this person is not going to sleep. Let me keep their senses heightened. Let me make sure that their blood sugar is up to par to make sure that they're still functioning and they're not in danger. Because even though we seem to be very, you know, fancy and evolved human beings, our template is very similar to that of our ancestors, you know, a hundred thousand plus years ago. And so. During that time, if you were sleep deprived and your abilities were reduced, that can mean death. And so cortisol is going to get elevated. And, and As you know, and I'm sure you talked about this many times, this process called gluconeogenesis could take place where we're taking your valuable muscle tissue, for example, and turning it into glucose. Cortisol has an interesting ability to do that. Cortisol is not bad, by the way. It's just when it's produced at the wrong time and the wrong amount. And so it's going to do whatever it can to increase your blood sugar because another study found that, again, 24-hour sleep deprivation, there's a 6% reduction in glucose even reaching your brain. And about 20% of that is from that prefrontal and insular cortex. So your brain is starting to starve and your body's going to do whatever it can to feed your brain first. And so I hope that makes sense. It's kind of a lie, but I hope it makes sense.
0: Yeah, it totally makes sense. I love what you said about, you know, being underslept handicapping our ability to put ourselves in the shoes of another person. And it kind of makes me think about the fact that we're all so underslept these days and, you know, the relationship that that may have with the seeming lack of empathy, just when you look around and you put on the news media and I mean, not to get too off topic, but it's, um, you know, I, I wonder if there's a relationship there. There has to be. Absolutely, man. See, you just hit a,
1: a chord for me, you know. This is something that I haven't talked about much, man. But I've been researching this a lot lately uh, for a new project and looking at what's going on behind the scenes with, you know, a, a lot of the violence taking place and a lot of the lack of understanding and compassion on both sides of of the table in different circumstances. And yes, man, we see this across the board. Um, You know, if we look at just the public in general, if we look at some studies done on, you know, physicians on. Um, you know, firefighters, um, folks who are in the, the, the police force and things like that, and seeing that we're not really doing a great job as a society to take good care of them. You know, the, the structure of shift work is pretty archaic in a sense. And I'm not saying we need people up who are taking care of these emergency services. Absolutely. But I think that a more uh, intelligent approach would be for folks to do this in seasons you know, seasonally, like somebody takes this on for a quarter, then they get three quarters to reset because here's a great, uh, really great study. And this was the nurse's study. This is one of the longest, most well-done studies out there. So many different metrics were taken from this. But uh, nurses who, again, are entrusted with tr- taking care of our health, we our system is failing them because what they found was that nurses who are doing shift work, so working overnight when they their body and their, you know, we're talking about circadian rhythms, everything is lined up to sleep at night, instead they're up at night, had a 30% increase in breast cancer versus the normal population of nurses who didn't do shift work. And they found that even if it was a couple of days a week, you know, two to three days a week was enough to throw off that hormonal clock and increase their incidence of breast cancer. And part of the reason, I'll just throw this nugget out there. I've been studying melatonin for a long time. And I just thought about it from when I went to school. When I was in college in a university setting, I was taught that melatonin is produced by your pineal gland, end of story. It controls sleep. And that's just, it's just not right. It doesn't necessarily even control sleep. It's not a sleep-related directly hormone. It really helps to regulate your entire circadian clock. And melatonin is also a powerful hormone involved in fat loss. It's also a powerful hormone involved in anti-cancer programs, right? So regulating your immune system and white blood cell activity. But we don't talk about that stuff. And in relationship to the fat loss part, I'll just throw this out there because when you say something like that, you got to have some evidence. So it was the Journal of Pineal Research, by the way, found that even when you have a pinealectomy, like you get the pineal gland removed, levels of of, uh, melatonin still remain relatively the same in the gut because you have 400 times more melatonin stored in your gut, in your enteric nervous system than you do in your brain, right? This pineal gland. And so that's not the end of the story with that. But also, I'm sorry, the, the researchers found that melatonin increases the mobilization and activity of something called brown adipose tissue. And this is a kind of fat that burns fat. And the reason it's brown versus the white adipose tissue that we think about when we're trying to burn fat, the reason it's brown is that it's very dense in mitochondria. And so this is kind of this you know energy power, power plants of our cells. It's so dense in it There's so much metabolic activity happening that this kind of fat burns fat and melatonin increases it.
0: That's amazing. I think what you said is so critical when it comes to really kind of broadening our own understanding of all the different hormones that we hear about, um, you know, when we're reading blogs and maybe, you know, media designed to reach lay people that, you know, these hormones that you know, millions of years, billions of years of evolution have placed in our bodies, they don't have single jobs, you know, like you mentioned cortisol earlier. Cortisol is, you know, it's, I would say most frequently associated with stress, but it's also a vital uh, hormone when it comes to waking up and helping liberate stored fuels and, um, you know, energy sources in our body to help sort of, you know, give us the energy to seize the day. And the same thing goes for melatonin. That melatonin, you know, we all tend to refer to as the sleep hormone. But as you mentioned, so eloquently, it's it's an antioxidant. It's involved in cancer protection. It's That's a, a really critical um, nuance that I think often gets lost. Absolutely. You know, and so kind of
1: going back to that point of like, what are we doing as a society that's affecting our ability to relate, to perspective take, to communicate? All of this stuff goes together, you know, right? Nutrition, it's, we have, you mentioned earlier, this concept of being hangry and we've got commercials about it. It's kind of funny, it's kind of cute, but people really do get into it when they're hungry, you know, and so what are we doing to address our blood sugar needs, you know, as far as a society? What are we doing as far as our movement practices that elicit, you know, epigenetic triggers that make sure that we're you know, turning on genes for people to just feel Uh, less anxiety and feel more calm and peaceful and in their power and in their body, you know, all of this stuff goes together. And, you know, as we've been talking about, sleep is definitely a huge component because of the huge impact that it has on your brain. And as you know, like our brain is the governing system over all of this stuff. We can't have a conversation about fat loss and and performance without talking about our,
0: our brain. Absolutely. Would you say that, um, you know, giving somebody nutrition advice as a nutritionist is almost putting the cart before the horse if you're not fixing their sleep first? You know, I'm going to say yes. You
1: know, I actually, one of the last, I was doing clinical work for over a decade. And one of the last people that I worked with, I literally wouldn't even bring her on as a client until she got off from doing shift work. And it was kind of a, you know, it it was a blow to her. And you know, because we have this story that, you know, this is the only work that I can do. This is the only time. And she didn't have any kids. She didn't have any responsibilities, really. It's just a story we tell ourselves. And of course, we do have situations and circumstances that make it difficult. But if your priority, number one priority, is your health, then work and shift work is going to be working against you. If your number one priority, however, is service and you want to be that emergency technician who's working that overnight shift, absolutely so be it. We need you. We love you. We appreciate you. We need to do everything we can to stack conditions in your favor, because you are literally throwing off everything about you, all your genetic programs. We've got around five thousand specific genes that are influenced directly by the role of melatonin, right? By the role of this kind of dernal cycle that we have, lining up ourselves with what nature is doing in that clock. And so, and just collectively, by the way, we only have like twenty-five to thirty thousand genes collectively as humans. So that's about one-fourth or one-fifth of our genes simply by getting our body clock out of whack. And so with that said, for me, again, it really boils down to what are the actionable, simple things that we can do as a culture to make sleep, getting good sleep a norm because it's far from the norm right now.
0: So well said. So, what are some things that we can do then to to boost the quality of our sleep? And when it comes to the length of sleep, I mean, how much sleep do we all need? And does that vary person to person, and even within the individual? You know, do I need more sleep or less sleep depending on you know my activity levels, things like that? That's such a great question, man.
1: And most people most people don't really ask that because I think that we've we've been a little bit confused about what sleep actually is. And I think that's the most important place to start because it's a very weird thing. You know, if you think about you going to sleep, it's, it's like you're, you're clocking out. You're completely uh, unconscious and vulnerable. Hmm. And you would think if this is something that was not a huge necessity, we would have evolved out of sleep at, a, at some point. But it's such a huge necessity because of all of the critical things that take place during, you know, especially in in our brain when we're sleeping, you know, uh, memory processing, um, the activation of the glymphatic system, cleaning your brain out with all, you know, all the metabolic waste that are accumulated with your brain. And the list goes on and on. And so I want to start there. What is sleep? And to make it as simple as possible, because again, it's a very weird thing to try to describe. When we're talking about getting good sleep, we're talking about optimizing our sleep cycles. All right. So what does that mean? We know that you're sleeping because we can see the different changes in your brain waves, right? Our normal waking state is we're in beta right now. We can get into some gamma as well. But then we transition into alpha and then to theta and then the delta wave. And we know that somebody is in deep kind of the most anabolic type of sleep when we get those delta waves going. And so what sleep really is, great sleep, is we're spending a sufficient amount of time in each of those stages because each of those stages are correlated with different hormones, hormone activity, and different enzymatic activity, different neurotransmitters, doing different things depending on which stage you're in. And so if, for example, your REM sleep is screwed up, that can result in, you know, even if you sleep eight or nine hours, you're still going to wake up feeling terrible. And just a caveat, I never say the number of hours somebody needs to get, because it's it's just negligent to say, you know, you need to get eight hours sleep, end of story. Everybody's different. And you are different based on where you are in your life right now, what your levels of stress are, your exercise, whether or not you're learning new material, what, what's going on with your, with your relationships. All of these things are going to influence your sleep requirement. And so here's the thing. If REM sleep is is compromise and I'll just give an example one of the things that we've seen clinically and by the way so there's story we we've got movies about this right it's the hangover i don't know if you saw i you know part 1 is kind of classic but at part 3 it got a little bit stupid <laughs> but um with the movie the hangover they're talking about a real phenomenon like these guys get hammered on something and they can't remember what happened and i don't know if you know anybody's ever happened to i'm not going to say this has ever happened to me but there is, if you drink alcohol, for example, before bed, close to bedtime, especially if you drink a lot of alcohol, um, that damages your REM sleep. It creates something that we call a REM rebound effect takes place, and so even though the person is unconscious, they go to sleep. Their REM sleep is so suppressed that when they wake up, they can't really remember some of the stuff that happened. And why does this matter? It's during REM sleep that's something called memory processing a big chunk of that takes place and that's when your experiences get converted into your short term memory and so if your rem sleep isn't there to file that data away you can't remember all right so again if you miss that phase of sleep because of something like drinking alcohol really close to bed that can throw off your overall sleep cycle and that that's what we really want to target max is optimizing our sleep cycles and this doesn't mean you can't drink but how do we go about that in a in an intelligent way so we can, you know, get our sleep, our, our sip on, but also make sure that we're getting the high quality sleep we need. And so I guess if we want to jump in, I'll give one quick kind of low hanging fruit. Yeah. Okay. So this one is so ridiculously simple. Actually, somebody just tagged me in this uh, today. Like people tag me in this stuff all the time. And what they're doing now, because this the, the post starts off that, you know, they've been struggling with their sleep for, you know, uh, over a decade. And they finally picked up my book and they have been employing this one strategy. And so what it is, is simply getting sun exposure. So how the hell does getting sun exposure help you sleep better at night? And I wanted everybody to take this away today is that a great night of sleep starts the moment you wake up in the morning. Right? Wow. A great night of sleep starts the moment you wake up in the morning. And so As you mentioned earlier, cortisol is important for getting up and getting going. When we get sun exposure, it actually increases our cortisol. Not a bad thing. This is when historically we would have gotten up and and gotten active, you know, being hunter gatherers. This is the opportune time to do it because we're not nocturnal creatures. And so getting up and getting some exposure to sunlight, innovations in clinical neuroscience found that folks who get sun exposure, and this is just, this could be 20 minutes, you know, between specifically they mentioned the hours of 8 a.m. to to 10 a.m., that kind of morning sun. What they found was that test subjects that were getting that sun exposure had lower levels of cortisol in the evening if they got sunlight in the morning. Now, why does this matter? Cortisol and melatonin have kind of an inverse relationship. And so if cortisol is elevated, that can really work to suppress your melatonin. And so if we can get cortisol levels down in the evening, this can help for po- folks to normalize their sleep cycle. All right, so getting some sun exposure during the early part of the morning can help you sleep better at night.
0: That is so beautifully said and um, so true. I mean, cortisol is sort of like an, it's, a, it's an energizing hormone because, I mean, think about its role in the morning it's really, you know, it's one of the hormones that helps get us out of bed. And it also elevates during periods of stress as a means of helping us get out of harm's way. So anything that you can do to minimize cortisol later in the day, I think that's a great thing. So that's a, that's a really important tip. Awesome. Awesome. And
1: another thing with that, um, with cortisol, even there's a lot of talk about thyroid uh, issues today, and it is definitely an epidemic, but even making your thyroid hormone. And, you know, the active form of it, you need cortisol in this equation, you know. So even having energy, burning fat, cortisol is not a bad guy. It's just when it's produced at the wrong time and the wrong amounts. Another thing that that sun exposure does is it increases your production of serotonin. And if we're looking at that formula, you know, with melatonin definitely being a player in our sleep quality, serotonin is a precursor for making melatonin. And so, again, getting that sun exposure, you're creating that precursor. You're getting the opening act going for the main performer at night, which is going to be melatonin. And so that's one strategy. Another strategy, and this can be coupled together. Appalachian State University found that when you get exercise in the morning versus the afternoon and the evening, they had test subjects to train it all three of those times exclusively. So 7 a.m. in the morning for a phase, 1 p.m. in the afternoon for a phase, 7 p.m. in the evening for a phase the morning exercisers versus the other time spent more time in the deepest, most anabolic stage of sleep. They had more efficient sleep cycles. They tended to sleep longer. And they also had on average a 25% greater drop in blood pressure at night versus the other two times of exercising. And I just thought that was nuts. All (laughs) from exercising in the morning, you get all of that benefit. Like it's just really hard to fathom. And I think one of the biggest things that's overlooked in that study is the fact that that drop in blood pressure, that's correlated with relaxation response, you know, from turning off that sympathetic fight or flight and turning on that parasympathetic rest and digest in the evening. And so for some folks, they might, they might already be doing that. And other folks might, I don't have the time or whatever the case might be. I'm not saying you need to hit the gym or do a whole, you know, Shanti, whatever, insanity workout. I'm saying just five minutes, Five minutes, and I tested this for a year before my book came out, because I've been a morning exerciser for a long time. But I started training in the in the afternoon, late afternoon, with my son, like four four thirty, five o'clock. But I still got up and did five minutes in the morning. I might just grab my rebounder, which NASA, literal rocket scientists, are just you know they rave about jumping on the mini trampoline for all the benefits it gives. Um, just go for a quick jog around the block, a power walk do some yoga, just do something to get your blood moving, get your bot, get that cortisol up because what it, do- what it does at the end of the day, the bottom line is this, it does something called a cortisol reset. So it helps to get your cortisol spiked in the morning, which is supposed to be to get it back on a normal cortisol rhythm because it should peak in the morning and then gradually go down as the day goes on and bottom out in the evening. And so just by getting up and exercising, you could do this outside. And Max, I think we might need to talk a little bit about like, what about this time of year? You know, you and I, like right now I'm in the Midwest, you're on the East Coast. It's not easy to get that sun exposure, right? You're right. So there are some hacks that you can, can do. And so they did a study on office workers and they found that office workers who didn't get access to just natural light coming in through windows, just illuminating the room. The office workers who were kind of like in a cubicle dungeon, who didn't have windows, access to windows, on average, lost objectively an hour of sleep. So they might jot it down in their journal that they slept for eight hours, but it was really seven. They missed an entire hour of sleep quality because they weren't going through those cycles correctly, because they weren't getting exposure to sunlight. Even just coming in through your your eyes, your optical receptors. It's not a good idea necessarily to sit by a window and let the sun bake you, all right? Because of uh, UVA and UVB, there's a difference. And the UVB that we really need to like create uh, vitamin D and things like that, it doesn't really get through glass that well. And so this can elevate the rays. You get more exposure to the rays that are kind of more connected to skin cancer, all right? So a little bit is fine. But you know, if you could just get yourself, get sunlight coming in, open the windows up, Get that exposure. That's going to be beneficial. Then we've got, um, you know, clinically prescribed things like light boxes that are proven to be effective for things like seasonal affective disorder. These are great for helping that circadian timing. Um, they've they've got visors now. You can put on. There's little earbuds. I don't know. Max, have you ever seen those earbuds
0: with the light that they it beams light into your ears? Yeah, I I actually have one, but I I have not used it. Are you a, are you a fan of those? I've only,
1: well, let me, let me take that back. I only use them consistently, uh, when I was like traveling out of the country and just like I was on a big stint, it's been months and months and months since I used it, uh, because I employ so many other things, but I can't really, I don't know if they did the trick because I just kind of adjusted pretty quickly. I did a lot of things right, but the research is really interesting so far. And, um, it was, it might've been Ben Greenfield, but One of my friends had shot some of the data over to me. And of course, like, I want to see more, but it's really interesting. It's interesting stuff. And plus, it's the reason that I like it is that it's more subtle. Like, if you are on a plane, you could pop those in your ears. And versus having those weird looking visors on and you're, you know, sitting in your, you know, airplane seat looking like Kanye West or something. I don't know, man. But, you know, there's a lot of different options, things to play around with to get a little bit more of that sun exposure. My biggest thing, though, at the end of the day, Just try, you know, if you can just get outside, I know it could be a little bit nippy, get outside, get some fresh air, get some sun that you can get, even if it's five or 10 minutes, it's better than zero, you know, and then you can have those other things to be supplements. I want to err on the side of doing what our genes expect us to do and then using technology as a supplement for those things that we can't necessarily get a lot of access to.
0: I love that. I love that you said that because you know I feel like the the obsession with technology and, and gizmos these days, and the, especially in the biohacking space, I feel like for many people there's still a lot of low hanging fruit that they ignore, and then they'll reach for something like a you know a flashlight that shines light into your into your ear holes. When you know, I'd be curious whether or not you know, a there are light sensing proteins in the ear. Um, but then also whether or not those proteins are connected to the time setting mechanism in our, in our brains. I mean, I just don't, I don't have that, that data. Um, I'd be, I'd be super curious to know, but, um, one of the things I love about your book, it's such a wealth of knowledge as are you, but you have this, this wonderful chart where, uh, you, you, you highlight the different light intensities under various contexts. And, you know, I think what's so important for people to, to recognize that even on an overcast day. You know, just getting outside. If the if the if it's just all cloud cover, you're still getting enough light to basically anchor your body's circadian rhythm and thus uh, help your sleep later on that night. Yes,
1: exactly. Absolutely, it's such a beautiful thing. You know, like our incredible bodies are set up to ebb and flow with nature. You know, and especially during this time of year, we we should have ideally have had the opportunity to build up some reservoir of things like vitamin D and things that we won't be producing as much of. And this is where we can get in the conversation about supplementation and things like that. But also there are key nutrients that we can talk about that are directly related to your sleep quality. And vitamin D is one of them. We've got some really fascinating studies that have been done uh, on those things. And one of them, so I, let's just talk about them because these good sleep nutrients, these are things that we would just be getting in normally as part of a whole foods you know, the real food diet. But, I, I, you know, of course, many folks are missing out on some of these things. And so a public library of science found that um, vitamin C, for example, we know it's a powerful antioxidant. When we hear vitamin C, I know I still do. I think about our immune system. And it's just because of that marketing growing up that it's like so important for our immune system. But it's also important for our sleep. So what they found was that test subjects who were deficient in vitamin C had Ah, uh, more tendency towards having interrupted sleep cycles. So these were people who woke up more frequently during the night. And then by balancing out that nutrient deficiency, it canceled out that problem, right? But the question is, are you getting adequate vitamin C? Are you getting the vitamin C? There's different forms of it as well. You know, are you getting it from a synthetic supplement? Or are you getting it from real food? You know, and so, and what are some of those? So obviously the the uh, conventional stuff, we've got strawberries, we've got, sweet peppers, we've got kiwis, we've got citrus fruits, all that good stuff. Then we've got that superfood category where we see things that are very, very high in vitamin C, like amla berry, acerola cherry, camu camu berry is, I think it's number one ranked botanical. Uh, Maybe it's number two for vitamin C, you know? And so you can start to incorporate some of those things as well, you know, really interesting. But I always air people on the side of like, let's get the real food source and then if we can, we go to the food, real food source concentrates. And then from there, synthetic stuff is like down the line, you know? And so and there's just a bunch of those good sleep nutrients we need to keep our eye out for.
0: You talk about magnesium in your book too.
1: Oh my goodness, man. It's a game changer for me. Um, <laughs> man, this one, I, I just couldn't believe it. It was actually uh, Dr. H- uh, Mark Hyman who told me about it. And we were just talking about this the other day, actually, because he's the first person who really brought it to my attention. I didn't know that it mattered so much. And I didn't know that it was such a big nutrient deficiency. As far as the minerals are concerned, it's probably the number one mineral deficiency. And from the metrics, it's looking like at least 60% of the population is like chronically deficient in magnesium. And why does this matter? Magnesium is responsible for over 325 biochemical processes that your body cannot do without this mineral being present or it can't do efficiently. And so what I mean by that is that your body literally has to try to figure out a way to relax your muscles. Your your body has to figure out a way to to, to relieve muscle tension, to uh, beat your heart, all right? Your heart literally, Dr. Oz shared this with me, is that even when he has a patient on the table, they're like administering magnesium to keep the heart beating while he's doing surgery. I was like, this is blowing my mind how important it is. And so and it being the biggest mineral deficiency, our bodies are kind of like robbing Peter to pay Paul to try to figure out stuff just to give us basic. And the human body is so resilient, which is beautiful, but why do this to ourselves? And so in relationship to sleep, really fascinating studies, they're taking like literally folks with clinically proven um, sleep dysfunction, right? So folks have insomnia. And giving them, and they're seeing this just baseline on average, like all of them deficient in magnesium in this study. And when they get their magnesium levels back up to par, their sleep problems subside, you know, just, and we're seeing about 70% effectiveness for that. That's way more effective than Ambien. But here's the issue. Again, we get right into this pill for every ill kind of mentality. Well, I just need to take a magnesium supplement because magnesium is... I liken it to kind of an anti-stress or relaxation mineral that has a lot of processes with the parasympathetic nervous system, a lot of relationship to that. And so being being that it's an anti-stress mineral, today we're exposed to more stress than we can imagine, you know, but it's different. It's not like our ancestors. It's like we have a lot of mental stress. A lot of us are knowledge workers in and of itself, but a lot of folks are dealing with anxiety. And just because of there's so much. To be done. There's so much exposure. There's so much distraction, and all of that is just zapping us of magnesium. Also, the the world itself. You know, the air that we're breathing. We spend a lot more time indoors. Kind of artificial. You know, kind of processing of the air. Our food supply. The water. It's just a very abnormal conditions that we, for us as humans. You know, very new for us. Not saying it's bad. I I, I very much like having air conditioning and heating. All right. But at the end of the day, we have to understand these are stressors for the body. We're still trying to adapt to. And so it zaps that magnesium from us. So this is something I recommend people get a continuous influx of. Food first and a great marker. Anything that's green is going to be a pretty good source of magnesium. You know, so all of the green leafy vegetables, uh, kale, collard, um, Swiss chard, all of that good stuff. But then we can shift in and look at some of those quote superfoods as well. But this was, and I haven't talked about this a lot, Max. But in my practice, you know, probably about ninety percent of people, I would put them on a supplement. And this was a while back. Like I closed my practice about three or four years ago. I probably wouldn't do it as frequently today. But the testing for magnesium is so, it's it just it isn't that good. It isn't that good to get the adequate. Measurements. And so, just as a safety precaution, I would have, I would put po- folks on a supplement. And I, like I said, I probably wouldn't do it as much today because taking an oral supplement, if you take even a little bit more than your bowel tolerance, because magnesium pulls more moisture to your bowels, mm. it can cause diarrhea, right? So, it can cause what we call clinically poopy pants or <sighs> disaster pants or get your diaper. And so, what we do is, for me and what I just did even before this call, man, I, I got out of the shower before we did this interview and I just rubbed some topical magnesium on, mm. right? Because it's incredibly absorbable through the skin. And folks might think like, well, wait a minute, how? So many medications now they're finding ways to do this transdermally, right? Even hormone creams, for example. And so magnesium is absorbable through the skin, but there's a there's some crappy products out there, some magnesium oils that might be thirty percent absorbable. Some that you know might be a supercritical extract, and like you know, just kind of processed the right way, they could be upwards of even ninety percent absorbable. And your body will only absorb as much as it can use. Versus you're putting the magnesium in orally, and as soon as you even hit a little bit more than your bowel tolerance, you got diarrhea, and you can't even get the magnesium levels up that you were trying to go for. So that's a lot, man. I hope that all makes sense. Of course it made
0: sense. I, um, I supplement sometimes with magnesium glycinate and I've found that, uh, it's, uh, I've got a pretty high tolerance for it. I don't know if that has the same, um, effect, you know, the same laxative effect that other forms of magnesium have, but, um, but the skin, uh, absorption thing is definitely, I had an experience recently, I was at Esalen have you ever been to Esalen up in Northern California? Yeah, so they have these sulfur baths. And um, I mean, most people know what sulfur smells like. It kind of has a, a, a faint whiff of like a rotten egg smell, but it's very good for you. And hydrogen sulfide is, you know, it's being looked at for its potential therapeutic uses. But anyway, so they have these sulfur baths, and, you know, they're, they're, extremely luxurious but they definitely smell a little bit like rotten eggs and you 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 soak in them it's supposed to be very good for inflammation potentially for your for your blood lipids and cardiovascular system things like that and i didn't i didn't know this but for days afterwards whenever i would sweat i would start to smell like <laughs> rotten eggs and i i didn't know that that was it was you know going to come out of me and so i would like look around at the gym i was like did somebody just like you know like fart around me and high protein, was...
1: high protein diet fart.
0: <laughs> yeah, man, it was crazy. So yes, the, uh, that, all that is to say that the skin absorption thing is, is real. So that's a, that's a, that's a great tip. Awesome. Um, that was a great point too,
1: about there's different forms of magnesium. I mentioned earlier, there's different forms of vitamin C. There's different forms of magnesium as well. There's, you know, citrate sulfate. When we, when we think about Epsom salts, which has been used traditionally, I mean, for a long, long time, a couple centuries, just known for their uh, healing properties, you know, helping to soothe sore muscles and improve sleep and all these things. It's because your skin is absorbing that magnesium through the, through the bath. So yeah, lots of different options.
0: I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about nutrition because you've got that, that, you know, wonderful background. And, you know, we both, I think, spend a little time with our fingers sort of plugged into, um, you know, the ether of like nutrition trends and what people are talking about so that we can thus cater our educational content to what people are actually, um, seeking and are interested in. And and you and I had a few texts back and forth talking about, you know, this, um, the, uh, the trend over at least Instagram, but where, you know, people tend to be really focused on calories Um, and you know, meal pictures and meal prep and, and food photos all tend to come with a calorie count. And we're kind of talking about how this is a little bit counterproductive, but, um, I don't know. I just want to get your thoughts on, you know, calories in calories out and, you know, whether or not you, you feel that a calorie is, um, just a calorie. Yeah, man,
1: if this isn't like this is controversy, man, you know. I you know, the thing is with this nutrition paradigm and just with health and medicine period, we have all of these words that describe that very gener- generally describe things, right? Even a diagnosis is still just a kind of an educated guess. It's a description of some symptoms that seem to be similar to these symptoms over here. And the reality is no two people have the same exact diabetes. No two people have the same exact um, uh, cardiovascular health, right? But we create these blanket statements, you know, and calories is one of those things where it's a unit that we use to measure things, but it's so freaking, to measure the energy of food is so complicated. It cannot be boiled down to a calorie. It just can't. And we get caught up in that because it gives us, you know, real talk, you know, the brain, the the brain does really love managing things, right? It loves metrics and being able to count, but we got caught up in, into this catchword and missing the point, right? So it's a general description of the amount of quote, energy in the food, but what is energy really? It's not just the calorie count. It's also the, the macronutrient. Count, it's the micronutrient count. It's how your body's going to process it based on your liver function, your thyroid function, your hormone function overall. There's so many things to take into account. And so seeing one of those Instagram pictures where we've got, you know, the two, the two different things, you know, split screen, we got one side, we got broccoli, 300 calories of broccoli, and we got 300 calories of cookies. And then the, the caption is like, don't flip out over eating the cookies. You know, it's still 300 calories. Now, listen, First of all, I'm going to say, yes, don't flip out over eating the cookies, but also don't lie, right? The cookies are going to have a very different impact on your hormones and your metabolism than the broccoli is because you have to ask the question. And by the way, so 300 calories of the cookies, maybe not that big of a deal, but what if we talk about, I mean, I know, I don't know about you. I've eaten like a whole pack of cookies before, like Mm -hmm. the whole tube pack. And so we're talking probably a thousand calories of cookies what happens, whether it's 300 or 1,000 calories, what happens when you eat those specific calories from the cookies? Number one, this is going to elicit your pancreas to do very different things than if you ate 300 or 1,000 calories of salmon and broccoli or whatever the case might be, right? So you're going, you've going, got these beta cells and they're going to get, they're going to get turned on, right? This is going to rub them the right way and they're going to start producing more insulin. And insulin is your body's pretty much as its number one kind of major leader as a fat storing hormone or energy storing hormone, let's say that. And so insulin's job is to take as many of those calories as it, that it can and store it as energy. That's its job. It's getting brought in to do a job. It's going to do its job. And so if, versus eating that salmon and broccoli or whatever it is, you know, we could throw so many different things in there. Um... It's not going to elicit the, the the activity of insulin as much. Right. And so potentially your body can, you know, even with protein, for example, versus that very, very high carbohydrates you found in the cookie, protein has a slower burn. Fat has a slower burn. So your body's gonna be able it's it's gonna take more time to break those calories down and this kind of thermogenic effect that takes place. And so you can end up with a net loss potentially with your with your with your quote weight because of trying to burn through that versus something that's so digestible and easy to assimilate, even from the moment it touches your tongue, right? We've got amylase enzymes in our mouth that start to elicit and just break down sugar very, very quickly. You know, if we're talking about dough and bread and things like that and amylopectin A and B and whatever, uh, specifically A, if we're talking about these grains, but so Breaking this stuff down so quickly and hits your system so fast, your body doesn't have a chance, right? And so, this is just a small, I, I'm just getting kind of on a tangent here, but it's just crazy to think that 300 calories, no matter what the food type is, is all going to affect your body the same way and don't worry about it. It's just very ignorant to say that.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, like, you could take 100 calories of protein and 100 calories from starch, and you know, you might only yield. 70 calories from the protein because you've got maybe a 30 percent calorie burn from the thermic effect of feeding from protein and yet you're gonna basically absorb all of the starch um, calories which is you know so i think at the end of the day it's like calories and calories out like that may be a a, a, a a an accurate math statement but it's terrible mm. advice it doesn't tell you anything about the foods that are going to help you know, affect the rate at which you're burning calories, you know, your met, your metabolism, your um, basal metabolic rate. And it certainly doesn't say anything about the behavioral effects of these foods. You know, like you eat 100 calories of cookies, you're probably going to want 100 more calories from cookies. Whereas if you eat 100 calories from protein, you know, maybe you'll be satiated. Exactly.
1: And it's very, very easy to overeat donuts and cookies. You know, like, it's difficult to eat you know, five chicken thighs or whatever it is, but five donuts. I've, I mean, again, I've done that many, many times. Now listen to this. This is, I love this study because it was actually done in a metabolic ward. So the National Institutes of Health, they tracked test subjects in a metabolic ward and found that people who ate more fat calories compared to an identical number of calories from carbohydrates burned more than a hundred additional calories each day same calorie count different macronutrient ratio they burned a hundred more calories if you do the math on that that equals out if they're eating like this continuously a 10 about a 10 pound weight loss over the course of the year eating the same amount of calories you know so again all of this goes back to saying like food isn't just food calories are not just calories it is a metric absolutely we can pay attention to it we can manage it but you got to keep in context that it's a very very sketchy uh, label that we use to try to describe the energy content in food.
0: Yeah. And, you know, if you're listening and, and calorie counting is working for you, then by all means, stick with it, you know, and it's probably helpful for people at least once in their lives to do an, uh, you know, a, a sort of audit of the foods that you're eating and how many calories those foods contain, particularly if you don't have a sense really of the calorie content of foods, or maybe if you're, if your weight loss is stalled. I mean, there are, you know, acute useful applications for calorie counting but by and large we are not calculators you know and so i kind of feel like in many ways i don't know if you agree with me sean but this is sort of like it's a millennial thing you know because we have access to this data and spreadsheets and technology but if you were on an island without your smartphone and the ability to count calories um you know with a pen and paper what would you do you probably wouldn't be able to count calories right you just
1: eat you know, just yeah. eat. And all of these, th- you know, this goes back, that, that's a great reminder too, you know, of, um, you know, seeing folks who are still living in a hunter, hunter, hunter-gatherer type fashion and them not really having a concept of exercise, right? They see somebody running, they're like, why are they running? And if you tell them that they're doing it to be in shape, they, they're going to see it as like, this is just an incredibly... Uh, bad use of energy. You know, like, why would you do that? And today we're just trying to replicate and uh, I'm sorry, simulate those processes, things that we would have been doing through our evolution, you know, having plenty of great movement, eating real food. And we're trying to replicate that by going to gyms and and counting calories and trying to, you know, but the closer we can get and the more expanded our awareness becomes about this stuff, the better off we're going to be. And like you said, Uh, If it's working for you, that's the biggest biggest point. And I want people to really embrace that because when I talked earlier about no two people are the same, no two illnesses are the same, it goes the same for our health. No two people, your health process and the things that work for you is not going to be the same as anybody else. And to embrace that, to give yourself permission to do the things that work for you and to love it, enjoy it, but also give yourself permission to change if it's not working. And when you do that, you put yourself in a very empowered position where, you know, no matter what the circumstances, because circumstances are going to change. I promise you the diet, whatever you're doing right now, if you keep on trying to hammer that thing down when it's not working anymore, just like I'm not good enough, I'm not doing it right, I'm not doing it hard enough. Instead of just saying, you know what, that worked for me for a time period, but let me give, my, let me give myself permission to try something else. That's when you know that you've really kind of stepped into a place of mastery. Because with, with nutrition, mastery is really about overall awareness and the flexibility
0: to change as you change. Oh, man, so much wisdom. Oh, Sean Stevenson, well, it was such an honor and pleasure to, uh, to host you on my show. I've got one more question for you. But before I get to that, where can listeners connect with you um, online? And, uh, you know, please give the details on how listeners can listen to your incredible podcast the model health show which is consistently one of the top health shows on on itunes man that
1: means a lot max thank you thank you um yeah well people are listening to this incredible podcast they can find my show it's called the model health show the model health show and also my home online is the com. people can check me out i finally pretty active on instagram now so people can hang out with me there it's at sean model and this is where Uh, Max and I get into some of our conversations. So it's S-H-A-W-N-M-O-D-E-L. So Sean Model. And yeah, man, I mean, I really love um, doing this process and creating my show over the years. And I really strive to bring on only the very best of the best people in their respective fields, whether we're talking about emotional intelligence, I'm bringing on the guy who wrote the book. All right. uh, Dr. Daniel Gomez, for example. Um, And I also do masterclasses myself. So if it's on you know, the the connection between sleep and fat loss, you're getting every single thing that you could ever possibly want, university level education, but in a way that's fun, engaging, all makes sense, and you walk away feeling empowered. So yeah, again, you can check me out at the modelhealthshow.com and the model health show. And I appreciate you so much, Max.
0: I appreciate you. I still get so many messages from your fans that have discovered me from your show. That was uh seriously one of my favorite interviews that I'd done. Um, you know, for genius foods, and I look forward to having many, many more chats with you. Um, you know, as the future allows. So the last question that I ask to everybody on this on this podcast, I'm really excited to hear your answer. What does it mean to you to live like a genius? Oh man. Oh, that's such a good
1: question. That's such a good question. Hmm. For me, I think that it's about incremental growth. And every single day, I'm very much uh, a person who's driven by by growth. You know, it's kind of like one of our our human needs is to grow. And depending on the different person, you know, you might be more in the need of certainty. You might be more in the need of love. But for for all of us, we need to grow. And I can get caught up in that, though. You know, and I know this has happened to you, where we get passionate about something and we just want to learn and grow and explore. And it can take away from other areas of our lives. And I'm very, very dedicated uh, with my family. I love my kids so much. I love my wife. I love being of service and 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 helping people. So for me, I keep it incremental. And every day, my goal when I wake up and open my eyes, I ask, "How can I serve today?" And then I strive to just get one percent better. That's it. And for me, that's that's being a genius because. Going for those quantum leaps and those exponential jumps, that takes place when you're just compounding that 1% every day, every day, every day. And before you know it, you're at an entirely different level in your life and also, you know, the impact that you can have. And so for me, that's what it is.
0: Beautifully stated. Sean Stevenson, thank you so much for being here. And to all you guys out there listening in podcast land, as always, I appreciate your time and attention. Be sure to spread the word about The Genius Life on social media. Maybe highlight your favorite quote from this episode and tag Sean and I. He's very active on Instagram. I live for his uh, workout videos with his kids on his stories. You got to check those out. Always dancing, which is how we should be. So thank you again for tuning in. This has been another episode of The Genius Life. Peace.